to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to this week's American Bar Association's Cyber and Privacy Podcast, The New Frontier, in affiliation with the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Drexel University. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, and I am very excited to welcome this week's guest, Kirk Nahara. Kirk, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Kirk, could you introduce yourself and your current work of, you know, where you're, where you're working, what you're working on to our audience? Sure. So I uh, am a partner with Wilmer Hale in Washington, D.C. I am the co-chair of our global cybersecurity and privacy group and also co-chair of our big data group. Um, what that means is that I you know, lead a team that represents companies in pretty much any industry you can think of, certainly all over the United States, some globally on really the full range of privacy and data security issues that that comes up in you know an increasingly complicated field. That's really interesting. I know you're located in DC, so I wanted to take the opportunity to dive into the Federal Trade Commission or the FTC and its role in privacy and data security. Can you provide a high-level overview for our listeners since many people might not really you know, understand or even know about the FTC and its impact on privacy and security? Sure. So uh, the FTC is viewed by lots of people as, in some ways, the de facto national regulator on privacy and security. That's a little, that's both true and misleading at the same time. So they have sort of two major ways that they get into privacy and security. There are a number of specific laws COPPA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, for example, where the FTC is given specific authority to regulate specific things involving specific laws. That is important and a big part of what they do, probably not why we think of them as the de facto national regulator. The other thing they have is a statute that goes back, I don't know, 110 years or something at this point, Federal Trade Commission Act, Section 5, which allows the FTC to pursue unfair and deceptive trade practices. And what the FTC has done for the past, say, 15 years is, you know, taking a statute that originally was designed to deal with people who sold, you know, Kool-Aid as a cure for cancer, and now they're looking at privacy and security. And so they have built up jurisdiction, jurisprudence over data security, where they have found unfair trade practices for companies that don't have appropriate, reasonable, appropriate data security. They do a lot of cases involving deception on privacy where people have said things that weren't true or failed to say material things. What they're trying to build is an unfairness jurisprudence on privacy. And that's one of the sort of interesting areas right now. But they, they have very broad authority and they are very interested in using it at this point. And to confirm for our readers, that authority has been, you know, confirmed by the courts. There have been a couple of 
um, uh, you know, attempts to sort of question that authority that the FTC has taken in the privacy and security context. And I think so far, um, and, you know, Kirk, you weigh in on this, um, that's been confirmed that the FTC can play this role and sort of has that authority. Yeah, although, although that, I mean, that that is both true again and really interesting as a, as a weird way to do it. I mean, the, 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 let me go into the data security side for a second, which is really where that authority has been tested. So the FTC in, I think it was a 2004 or five case, did, brought a case against BJ's Wholesale, which is one of the warehouse companies. And they basically, up to that point in time, they had done cases where people either lied about something or failed to, to say in their privacy notices something, you know, something that was important. Um, BJ's Wholesale had a security breach that involved you know, wireless routing of credit card purchases in their stores, et cetera. And the FTC pursued a case against them for failure to have reasonable appropriate data security practices. BJ's Wholesale didn't have a legal obligation to say anything, and they hadn't said anything. So it was really a groundbreaking new case. Um, at the same time, because of limits on the FTC's authority, they didn't, um, they, didn't, they didn't have a monetary penalty. They basically told BJ's Wholesale, you, have an ob- you, you had an obligation to have reasonable, appropriate data security. You didn't do that. Now we're going to tell you you have to go implement reasonable and appropriate data security. So for whatever reason, I wasn't involved in that case. BJ's Wholesale said, fine, we'll go do that. And basically what they had was they had the next sort of 50 cases, don't hold me to that number specifically, but order of magnitude, where they pursued those cases and the company said, fine, we'll implement reasonable and appropriate security practices. Then a company challenged them and said, you don't have any authority to do this. Boy, what's, what's the law that says you're allowed to do this? And that, that's the case that I think you're referencing, where essentially the Third Circuit in the Wyndham Hotels case you know, if you read into the decision a little bit, they basically said, yeah, they did all these other cases. So now we think they have the authority. But it's basically because they did all those other cases. And so what we're going to be watching on the privacy side is that we know that we know what the court thought in Wyndham. And it, I think the court was very close to not letting them have that authority. And so when the FTC comes to some company next year and says, we think that you you were totally upfront, you were totally honest about what you're doing. But we think that what you're doing is unfair. I think there's going to be a real pushback because there isn't any history of that yet. And so that first case, I'm not sure they're going to win that first case. I'm not sure the courts are going to agree with that. So that's a really interesting thing that we're going to be watching over the next few years. I think that highlights what you had said earlier, which is that there's this belief that the FTC is sort of this de facto privacy regulator, privacy and security regulator in the U.S., but its authority is not even clear. It really doesn't have a traditional privacy and security mandate like we see in other regions, which creates a lot of, you know, unclarity and really, you know, not that consistency that we'd like to see in a privacy and security context. Absolutely. And I I, I should mention, there's even one other case that makes it even more confusing than that, which is said, so the Wyndham Hotels case, comes out and basically says, yeah, you've done these cases, we'll let you go ahead and do it. Then there was a case after that called the LabMD case, where, again, you try to make sense of the case. It's a little hard to do it. I, you know, I asked my law students to figure it out. And it's really hard for them to figure it out. But essentially what the court says in LabMD is, we agree you have authority to bring a case saying somebody didn't have reasonable appropriate security practices. But if your settlement tells them to implement reasonable and appropriate security practices, 
We have no idea what that means. And so that's an inappropriate basis to have a settlement. You know, you could build the argument without that much complexity that says that makes no sense at all. <laughs> so we know what it means to allege that you don't have it. But if we tell you to do it, we don't know what that means. So even at that level where they've done all these cases, we still have real open questions. And so I think we're still navigating, you know, we were navigating the lab MD challenges for a couple of years. Now we have, you know, new leadership, the FTC that's pushing in even more aggressive directions. And so I said, it's just, it's a really interesting place to be right now. And that's a great point because I think one of the challenges that you raise is that if, if, if you're an attorney or, or a business who is trying to take the FTC guidance and implement, quote unquote, reasonable security and privacy, you have to cull through almost every decision and sort of piece together what is actually required. Um, and I wonder from your perspective, you know, what are some key examples that businesses should be looking for and key takeaways? Because it is a very confusing um, you know, it's not one law that we can look to, like the GDPR says, you got to do X. Okay, so we do X. It's more like, here are 10 decisions on this topic, and we are going to attempt to create a rule that we think is reasonably defensible, if ever questioned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th that that is a real challenge to being a lawyer in this area. And I think part of the challenge is to understand, you know, to understand where that's ambiguous, where that's open. Um, and there's a, there's a skill to that, and there's a, there's a knowledge. Of At the same time, I do think, and and you know, some of some of my my peers and my colleagues who are lawyers in this area don't agree with what I'm about to say, but my view is that the FTC generally is pretty reasonable in dealing with those issues. They know, and and in fact, their cases are quite clear on this. Reasonable and appropriate is not a perfection standard, and so. What you're trying to do is do a pretty good job. It's in, you know, most companies, I mean, I have this discussion with, with, with companies all the time. I mean, the reason to do good security is not because there's a law that tells you to do good security. The reason to do good security is purely selfish from the company's perspective. A security breach is a bad thing. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad for your consumers. It's bad for your customers. It's bad for your business. It's just bad overall. And so companies, try to do the right thing, should try to do the right thing. All the cases that you were talking about are um, certainly useful indicators of things they should be paying particular attention to. Um, but at the same time, if something happens and you know you missed it or whatever reason, that's not necessarily the end of the world. I mean, I always think about security as sort of a three-stage process. There's a front end of building an appropriate security program. There's a middle component when you've had an incident of how well you handle the incident. And then there's a stage of learning lessons from that incident. I always tell my clients, I tell anybody, it doesn't have to be a client, but I mean, I, that when you have an incident, if it's a meaningful incident, some government regulator is going to show up three months later. I want them to be in a better place three months later than they were today. And that improvement is not a negative, it's a positive. I mean, it's, you know, there, there are companies that deal with, you know, products liability kinds of cases where, you know, fixing a product flaw is viewed as a concession that the earlier problem, you know, was a problem. That's not how security regulation works. And I think that's a really important thing for people to understand. So there is certainly guidance. There are certainly useful things you should pay attention to. But at the same time, you're trying to do a good job. And again, the FTC is usually willing to listen to you're doing a good job, even if it didn't work in a particular situation.
And I think it's a really key, um, you know, takeaway, which is we're not looking for perfection. And frankly, there is no perfection because whatever we develop today, you know, the perpetrators, the threats are going to evolve, the technology is going to evolve. You know, and I, I agree with you. I, I think that most regulators are looking for you to take reasonably appropriate measures to understand what you're doing, to not having nefarious or sort of dark patterns that you're trying to build into the technology. And that, you know, they want to see improvement. I think that this is, I always talk about sort of the journey because the journey is ongoing and it's never going to be static and you can't set it and forget it. And so I think that's a really good message is that, you know, while we, we see these headlines that have these sort of record-breaking fines, et cetera, I, I do think there's reasonableness. And I think for most companies, they're going to find a very reasonable regulator that they're talking to, um, you know, unless you're doing something nefarious and then, you know, you're going to have to. <laughs> well, and that, and that journey, that journey point is also important as a, almost an independent issue, which is um, you have to be constantly evolving. I mean, it's, you, it's important when you've had an incident to figure out what happened and to improve and learn lessons from that. But that's not the only thing you need to be doing on a regular basis. I mean, for example, I want my clients to be paying attention. You know, even if they didn't have an incident, I want to know what their competitors had, what their peers had, what other companies are dealing with that. You want to know what's going on out in the field. That's where those earlier cases are useful. If the FTC did a case five years ago that said, you know, I don't know, you, you, you failed to have a, an encrypted laptop and we're going to view that as an inappropriate at this point, you need to know that. You need to be fixing that, even if it didn't happen to you. And so if you built a, you know, we're going to talk about privacy issues a little bit. If you built a great program, privacy program under, say, the Graham-Leach-Bliley law, even 20 years ago, that privacy program may work fine today. If you built a perfect security program 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe even two years ago, it probably is a miserable failure today if you haven't adjusted it. And so that really is a critical part of, of uh, you know, being a lawyer, being a regulated entity, being a compliance person, being a security person in, the, in this field. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. I, I want to pivot a little bit to sort of understanding and sort of placing the FTC, which is this national, you know, federal agency, um, in light of the fact that we have a number of states, I think California, Colorado, Virginia, obviously being the ones that are sort of top of mind, that are adopting privacy laws. And maybe just from your perspective, how do you see either the role of the FTC changing or how do you see the FTC playing in a field where there are now these state regulations and yet we still sit here without any federal privacy law that the FTC can use as a guide point? Sure. So, so I mean, the, the, the states are, I think, even a bigger issue than, than that might lead on. I mean, I think all of the states, whether they have a specific privacy law or not, all of the states have a statute that is essentially like the FTC Act, where there's something akin to you know, unfair and deceptive trade practices. And so we are seeing more and more states through their attorneys general be active on privacy and security issues. Um, and again, under, under very similar kinds of broad, vague, ambiguous statutes. And frankly, they, most of the states don't have the history, at least on privacy and security, that the FTC has. And so those, those entities are out there. They are active. They're doing a lot of cases. Um, again, they often tend to be reasonable. You may have a slightly different mix because you have the, the more uh, explicitly political element of a state AGs. You have sometimes less expertise because of less history. Um, so it's a tricky issue. Then you superimpose on top of that the state laws that you're talking about, which are very specific privacy laws. And we're going to see more and more of those. And so the states right now are just a parallel, independent, you know, really important additional regulator. Um, 
I think the FTC and the states are often operating is is maybe too strong a word, but sort of sharing information on cases. You will see some cases where both the states and the FTC go after things. I don't, you know, it's it's not like a market sharing and a competitive practice where the FTC says, we'll do X and you do Y. Um, And in fact, sometimes you see, you know, the states go after somebody that the FTC has already gone after. So it's, it's a, it's a useful information sharing partnership, but at the same time, they're independent and they really are mostly independent. And so, you know, for, for, for companies that I work with, they've got to pay lots of attention to both of those entities. And is that the states, you know, whether it's a single state or a small group of states or a big group of states or 50 states, they're working together. They're getting more sophisticated. They're getting more thoughtful. They're getting more aggressive. Yeah, I think it's a good point that they are aware of each other, right? So like they're not operating in a vacuum. There's there's relationships there, whether they are, you know, information sharing or just knowledge of sort of what's going on. I think that's important because it it, it is very relevant to, to recognize we're going to have state and federal. And I don't think in the short term we're going to see that change significantly. I think we're going to have these sort of complex regulatory and, um, you know, agencies coming in and taking a look at your privacy. And it's really just being prepared to address any questions that might come up, whether that's at the state level or yeah. the federal. Yeah, and I think you know, you there there are things that the FTC is explicitly interested in as sort of higher levels of attention. There are some things that individual states are explicitly interested in. And again, part of part of my job is to you know be working with my clients on oh you you're doing this thing that you want to help children in their health, but okay, they you know everyone's interested in children's data or everyone's interested in health. You know there there are definitely points where. There, you, you need to pay more attention. You always need to pay attention to security. Is it? So that's just, a, again, that's a really complicated part of, um, of being a lawyer or advisor in this area. And I wonder, do you see the role of the FTC changing in the coming years, maybe because of the state involvement? Or, I mean, this could be a loaded question because it really depends on if, when, what happens at the federal level, because we see some bills that sort of create a whole new privacy agency. Then we have some bills that sort of actually give the FTC an express privacy and security mandate. So it's a loaded question, but I'm just yeah. curious from your perspective. Yeah, I, I mean, I I might I might diverge from the question a little bit. I, I think the role of the FTC is definitely going to change. I don't think the state issue is, is really what's driving that. So currently, the FTC, through its new leadership, is trying to be more aggressive with the, the current tools that it has. You know, I think it's an interesting question as to whether they are trying to demonstrate that, in fact, the tools they have can be used in more aggressive ways, or they're trying to demonstrate to Congress the limitations of their tools so that they can get new tools. That's an, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to be a fly on the wall of their strategy sessions, and I don't, I don't have that that kind of insight. Um, in a national privacy law, as those proposals are getting addressed. There certainly are some people in Congress, uh, Senator Gillibrand, I think, is the, the, has the main bill on this, but there's others who basically have said, we should have, like they have in Europe, a, a, a data protection agency that is solely, that's their job, and we want to take this authority away from the FTC, or at least move primary authority under a new law to a new agency. I don't know that I love that. I and mean, the FTCs, I mean, they've got a lot of history. They've got a lot of good people. They know a lot. They've had a lot of experience. They've got a lot of knowledge. I'm not sure that if you're looking at this from a policy perspective, we shouldn't, you know, well, I don't know, fix the is the right word, but improve the FTC 
rather than creating a whole new agency. You know, but that's, again, that's an experiment. We're seeing that in California right now, where California is moving from having the attorney general regulate and enforce CCPA to having this new privacy agency regulate under the new law. I don't know how that's going to go. And it's, I think it's going to be a really interesting, uh, really interesting issue. But it's certainly important to think about who a future regulator of a national privacy law is going to be. That's one of the, you know, I don't know, probably half a dozen, I would put as sort of second tier issues in a national privacy law. First two issues are preemption and a private cause of action. Then there's a bunch of other really important issues, like who the regulator is going to be, that I think are critical to the success of a national privacy law, and frankly, aren't getting enough attention as an issue because those first two issues are dominating all the discussion on how the national privacy law. So to sum up what you said, I think there's a lot to be discussed and we're nowhere near having answers. Um, so it's definitely going to be something to watch and monitor because I think it is going to be impactful. Whatever they do, it's just what, they're, what they do is, is a very much of an unknown. So, um, well, Kirk, this was a pleasure to have you on. I really enjoyed the conversation and you're diving into the FTC is just so incredibly fascinating. Um, I like to always end by asking my guests, you know, what is the most recent book you've read on cyber privacy law that you would recommend? Um, I uh, I can't say I've read because I haven't finished it yet, but I am thoroughly enjoying Neil Richards' recent book called Why Privacy Matters, um, which I think is a really good review of you know what this is we're talking about. I mean, even 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 understanding what privacy means and why we're thinking about it, why we care about it. Um, that's a, I said, he, he, he did a really nice job on that book and I'm really enjoying that. Um, but I said, there's a lot of, I said, there's just a lot of interesting things to be thinking and writing about now. And, you know, I, I, I sort of have a foot in both camps. I'm a, I'm a part-time fake academic and then I'm a practicing lawyer and yeah, you know, there's, there, there's too much to learn at this point. I, that's that's one of the real challenges. I mean, when I started in this field, it was easy for me to learn GLB and then HIPAA. And I feel bad for my young associates who have to learn 50 things at once now. And so it's a it's a growing, really interesting field. Lots of opportunities and lots of things we'll be spending a lot of time on for the next, you know, for the foreseeable future. I always like to think of myself as be a sponge because that right now we're all in that learning phase. So. Yeah. For, Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really fun to chat with you. If listeners want to reach out, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Um, you can certainly contact me by email, kirk.nara at wilmerhale.com. I'm also on, on Twitter and happy to respond to people. That's a Kirk J. Nara work. Um, uh, and I said, I've met a lot of really interesting people through Twitter. So please feel free to contact me there as well. Well, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series to the extent that the section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.